I've been in Washington for exactly uh, 50 years. I've never been as dispirited as I am now. I, in op-eds, have said, and I'm not the only one who's been saying it over the last year or more, this is the most serious internal threat to democracy since the Civil War. Nothing else comes close. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My excellent guest today, Ralph Nees, has been an important progressive leader for half a century, including working on the successful fight to protect civil rights laws during the 1980s. Among other things, he was chief legislative aide to two U.S. senators, then for a decade and a half, the executive director of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, and then for many years, president of the progressive group People for the American Way. He's been working for years to make the country better from many angles, including health care. We had a long and wide-ranging conversation, well worth your listen. So first, my sponsor, then my interview with Ralph Nees. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Ralph, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My wife would really smile and laugh if she heard that question. And she said, he'll take the entire hour. <laughs> My name is uh, Ralph Genies. Uh, I'm presently uh, just leaving a fellowship at the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. So I've been doing some teaching over the years. But most of my life has been directly or indirectly involved with politics. Born outside of Boston, moved to the Midwest outside of Chicago, uh, around eight, nine years old. My dad was a former fighter pilot and fought the Nazis over Germany, the real Nazis. My mother was a nurse, while my father was mostly a salesperson for the American Brass Company in was promoted to vice president. Very Republican household. My first uh, political memories were basically the founders of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, A. Philip Randolph and Roy Wilkins and Arnold Aronson, along with the guy by the name of Martin Luther King Jr., accompanied by a 21-year-old by the name of John Lewis, put together the March on Washington which is probably my first vivid political memory. And of course, I was spellbound uh, the entire day and it had a tremendous impact on me. The second one was a year later, watching the Democratic and Republican conventions. 
And I can remember the Mississippi delegation issue in that convention, but that was pretty much a foregone conclusion as to what was going to happen. And I was fascinated by Nelson Rockefeller versus Barry Goldwater. My father, of course, for Barry Goldwater, and perhaps with the natural inclination to support the underdog, I was rooting for Nelson Rockefeller and was astounded to hear the booing in the Cow Palace and got a little bit familiar with them. Fast forward four years, and I was a senior at Notre Dame to the surprise of liberal friends then and now. I was a lieutenant colonel of the Notre Dame ROTC. I was a history major, and I was co-chair of the Rockefeller for President campaign. Every four years, Notre Dame had a mock convention, and the choices were Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, Nelson Rockefeller, and Mark Hatfield, eventually a friend, the peace candidate. The worst thing that happened in that week or two was the day or two before the start of the convention, Nelson Rockefeller withdrew his candidacy for for presidency of the United States. But I campaigned for him because it was sort of he quit, but. So I was an advanced man for him in Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and joined him in Florida for the convention, as did Hillary Clinton. We were part of a small group of volunteers. We didn't get to know one another at the time, but we certainly would in the future. And my most vivid memory of that particular moment was being kicked off the convention floor when my friends and I organized a spontaneous political demonstration in front of everybody, of course, to the consternation of the Nixon people who only kicked us off the floor. At least they didn't jail us. But I, that was my introduction to politics. Uh, then I went to law school, the next year University of Chicago Law School. After the University of Chicago Law School, I was in the Army at Fort Benjamin Harrison in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. And then I came back and I had an opportunity to interview with Senator Edward W. Brooke, the first popularly elected black United States senator and a civil rights icon. And by then I had done a lot of civil rights work, some professionally, some at school, but I was thrilled to be asked to interview. And I also interviewed with Democrats and Republicans in the House and the Senate, uh, including Bella Abzug, who asked me to be her legislative director. When she called me the next day, she said, would you be my legislative director? And I couldn't believe it in light of our conversation. And I said, Congresswoman, uh, I think I might be asked in the next couple of days to be the legislative counsel for Senator Edward W. Brooke. Without a moment's hesitation, she said, if you have an opportunity to be a chief counsel to a senator, take it. Senator Edward W. Brooke was my mentor in every way from 1973 to 2015, taught me the legislative process, taught me about consensus and compromise and coalitions, crossing the aisle, forging bipartisan compromises. And I got to work on every single rights issue. And a lot of good things that we did, extending the Voting Rights Act, the ERA extension, saving Title IX. But one of the most important parts in light of my entire career 
is that the year I became his legislative director, several people joined the Senate. One was Senator Joe Biden, who I met with in my first few days and have been a friend ever since. The other one was Jesse Helms. And Jesse Helms was the start. Then it was called the New Right. But in my view, it was the beginning of the radical right, not the thoughtful, sometimes conservatives of the Republicans I had been witnessing for a while. But I knew once I heard the dog whistle rhetoric and the kinds of things he was doing to undo what the liberal Republicans and Democrats had been doing the previous 10, 15 years. And that was a six-year battle, scores of times, where Senator Brooke and Senator Javits were the lead in trying to protect a rollback of the civil rights laws enacted in the 60s and early 70s. That's not to the exclusion of other great leaders at that time on civil rights, Ted Kennedy, Birch Bayh, and others. But there was a backing away to a large degree of some of the Democrats in the 70s as school desegregation went northward. So my training was Senator Edward W. Brooke, and he worked with me during the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, People of the American Way. And as my wife, Katie, says, other than family, the most important person, the most important mentor in my life. Then I got Guyon Beret, and we can talk about that separately. But for the first time, after he was defeated, uh, I did not want to work for anybody else in the Senate. But two senators went after me, Senator Bill Bradley and Senator Dave Durenberger, moderate Republican and moderate to liberal Democrat. To say the least, especially with my Notre Dame background, Bill Bradley was someone I admired a lot. And I really wanted to consider working for him. And I did everything possible not to bring up basketball during the two-hour interview as he filled two yellow legal pads with notes about whatever I was saying, which was impressive, right? (laughs) The the 27, 28-year-old. And it went very well. And the interview with Durenberger went very well. And Bradley's administrative assistant says, He wants to hire you. He wants you to be the chief legislative assistant, but he wants a five-year commitment. And I said, he wants a five-year commitment? You want a five-year commitment who just lost his hero, who was, needless to say, not in the best frame of mind, and uh, let me think about it, but I don't think I would do it. And Dave Durenberger said, listen, I know what you've been through. How about if you come with me for six months and be my chief LA. If you like it, you stay. If I like you, you stay. Week number five, I got Guillain-Barre syndrome, giving a speech in Minneapolis while meeting his friends in the business community. And he became my most valuable player because he looked after me for the following six months when I went through all that I went through in terms of the total paralysis in the ventilator in St. Mary's Hospital, Minneapolis, Minnesota came back, finished the year, but my endurance had not come back. So after a year, I said, listen, I can work 12 hours, but then I got to sleep 12 hours as well as taking a nap during the lunch hour. That's not doing you as much good as it should. I'm not who you thought I would be. So why don't we just uh, part ways, at least temporarily. 
as soon as the word got out, the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights came to me and said, would you like to be our next executive director, first full-time director? I said, can't do it now. <laughs> I'm going to take a sabbatical and, and I'm going to go to Europe for the first time. And I'm probably going much too long for you right now. And I'm just going stream of consciousness. Uh, I think it's fine. It's not exercising my interviewing skills, but other than that, it's getting the story that I want. I'm delighted to um, to have you continue and then I'll ask you questions. This is really just maybe two or three minutes more of foundation. I'm not going to go through every job, but it's understanding what happened. And it's super interesting to me to have you tell the story. So keep going. I stayed uh, in St. Mary's Hospital for those 150 days and took about another year to rehab. And I thought I had the job. Uh, and then I got a call while I was in Sicily. And I said, when do I start? I'm coming back. And Arnie Aronson said, well, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I don't think you're going to get a job. And he said, well, as you can probably understand more than most, we're going to have to have an affirmative action search. Came back, first week back was the national election. At Arnie Aronson's house, I watched it as Reagan won and 12 Republican senators took over the Senate. And Arnie continued his affirmative action search very wisely, asking people like Eleanor Holmes Norton and Elaine Jones and Ron Brown if they wanted to be the executive director of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. Those are three really smart people who perhaps at that moment didn't think it was a great career move to become the CEO of the lobbying arm of the Civil Rights Movement. They all turned it down. And then someone must have thought, my God, Nice is not only a Republican, he knows much of the White House staff, half the ambassadors, and a good chunk of the senators. Maybe he should be our candidate. So to my surprise, I'm offered the job. And at the end, one of the nationally renowned black leaders said, you know, I've always liked you and you did great work for Senator Brooke. But in my book, you're 0 for 4. You're white, male, Republican, and Catholic. Good luck. But that was one of the most important lessons because I realized I was going to have to do one hell of a lot of listening. Whatever I could do as a lawyer, as a legislative policy person, or as a lobbyist would be a very different challenge managing a coalition of 185 organizations comprising the entire civil rights community. And that sort of governed my approach to the job for the next 15 years. Very briefly, after that, I taught at Georgetown I had the Nice Group and had 12 wonderful clients, uh, I think 11 out of 12 nonprofits. Then I ran for Congress and finished second to the Republican uh, incumbent. And then I was going to try two or three times. And on my second try, at age 53, we found out after 11 years of trying, I was going to become a father. So on <laughs> September 22nd, of uh, 1999, I said, Katie, I'm not running again. And she said, it's your dream. You got to run again. Uh, that's what we've been working for. And I said, listen, I raised 800000 I ran a good campaign with the intention of getting some name recognition and building on that. But I don't know how I'm going to be a good father at 53. 
and keep a marriage together, raise a million, two million dollars, and do what we all want me to do. A week later, Norman Lear called and said, would you like to be president of People for the American Way? And I said, yep. <laughs> so I did that for eight years. Then I went over to the Healthcare Coalition, the National Coalition on Healthcare, because I wanted to help out with the Affordable Care Act. And then I did affordable medicine. And then I did a state-centric election reform initiative called Let the Voters Choose, which the New Venture Fund bought into the Arabella Consortium. And I thought uh, this would be the perfect thing to do. And I was also going to do some work on an approach to resolving Alzheimer's with some doctors. And Let the Voters Choose got underway. And then I got Guillain-Barre syndrome number two. And I think you probably heard enough about that. Came out. And one of the first calls in March of 2019 was then uh, private citizen Joe Biden, just wanting to know how I'm doing. And his legislative director while I was in the Senate, Mark Gittenstein, who's now the European uh, ambassador to the European Union, he said, listen, would you speak out on behalf of uh, Joe Biden, your friend and my friend, on behalf of civil rights? It's going to be an issue because you fought him for years on scooty segregation. You and he had some disagreements on Anita Hill in the conduct of the hearings, but you worked with him for decades. And I said, of course I would. So I was sort of an unofficial surrogate speaker, advocate for him. And then, of course, he's elected, and I had to make a decision, do I go in or not? My neurologist at Johns Hopkins said, go in. We need like people like you who can compromise, who can work with Republicans. So all you have to do is tell Uncle Joe, all you have to do is say, listen, once or twice a week, I've got to leave around three o'clock in the afternoon. And I said, oh, yeah, <laughs> that'll go over with the White House staff and with the new president. So <laughs> several months later, I get two calls, one from something called Keep Our Republic, Dick Gephardt, Tim Worth, Tom Ridge, and Gary Hart. And they wanted me to work with them to combat the massive disinformation campaign that was well underway. This was May of 2021, of course. Uh, a week later, the Century Foundation calls and said, how would you like to be our uh, senior counsel on voting rights and get through the John Lewis bill and the Freedom to Vote Act and work to figure out something to do on the filibuster? So from May through the first of the year, that's all I did, 50 hours a week, proving to myself that I could do the work and having a lot of fun, knowing that the odds were quite daunting. And, and then at the end, uh, they wanted me to stay, and I probably will stay as a senior fellow, but Bob Shrum and Mike Murphy wanted me to be a senior fellow at USC teaching a course called Democracy at Risk. So that's what I did until about 10 days ago. I was there when you first contacted me, and it was one of the best experiences of my life and hopefully sets me up for the next phase. And it's probably the longest introduction that you've gotten in all the 759 or so interviews that you've done. <laughs> I don't know if it's the longest, but there are some careers that merit a long introduction, and I think yours is in that category. So 
Uh, I appreciate you laying it all out. I usually ask a bunch of questions about the course of things, but I actually think I want to start by asking you, as you're far from done, but as you look back on that career, which is at many of the heights of American politics and part of so many important things that happened, how do you view it, the part that's in the rearview mirror? Are you happy with the role that you've had? Do you have big regrets? What's the general big conclusion that you've come about the life you've chosen and built? I'm not sure, Nathan, I would have changed a thing. Needless to say, there was a general plan, <laughs> but trust me, uh, whether in professional or personal lives, I don't think I could have anticipated anything like what happened. The, the chance to work with the Senator Edward W. Brooke and sort of stop the new right during the 70s and then take over the lobbying arm of the civil rights movement in a time when everything looked absolutely awful. I talk about a second post-reconstruction. We didn't think there was a great chance of protecting that what had been done in the 60s and 70s. And we not only did that, we strengthened all the civil rights laws. We beat the Robert Bork Supreme Court nomination, enacted the Americans with Disabilities Act. I don't think anybody in the world of legislative lobbying at any level could have had a more enjoyable, harder, <laughs> challenging, rewarding time as I had those 15 years at the leadership conference. And my other jobs had comparable moments. At that time, maybe the golden age of bipartisanship between the early 70s, late 60s, and the time Gingrich took over in 94. And it was fun. It was a time where you not only communicated and were friends with those on the other side, but you teamed up with them and you figured out a way to craft timely bipartisan compromises. So during that whole Brooke Durenberger LCCR era, by the time I got back uh, in 2000, things, of course, had changed. In one way, I view 94, uh, a time when I lost Dave Durenberger, who retired, uh, Hamilton Fish, maybe my best friend in the House of Representatives retired. I didn't know that he had lung cancer at the time. But all of a sudden, <laughs> and it was really a sharp line of demarcation, the Wednesday group really was no longer in the United States Senate, that block of 15 to 20 moderate uh, liberal Republicans led by Brooke and Jake Javits and Chuck Percy and Mark Hatfield. You had what I think is the beginning of what has happened over the last 28 years or so, and that is anti-government. It's better to do nothing than let a legislation pass, unless, of course, it's less taxes or Supreme Court nominations or maybe infrastructure that benefits Republicans as well as Democrats. But the big fight now was like the third phase, the 70s, the uh, years of uh, Reagan, Bush, which were a surprise for most people. But we did a lot of good work. I enjoyed it. Uh, we were trying to preserve and protect democracy, but it was really uphill. And once Bush won that second time, 
it was only a matter of months or maybe a year or two before the right would probably have the Supreme Court. And of course, the conservatives had the court from 1971 until the present, but it was a matter of degree. So after 2008, especially because we had Barack Obama in there with Joe Biden, health care seemed to be the next horizon for me in getting the Affordable Care Act. In terms of a career, no regrets, Uh, some individual decisions maybe, but most of it worked out really well. And I was absolutely blessed to do what I dreamed of doing and was able to realize the dream. It's my observation that careers of prominence are built kind of with two things going on. One, good fortune and timing, and the other, doing a good job with the opportunities that came up. Like for Brooke, what were the characteristics that you brought to that that enabled you to be successful in that role, which then leads to other things? I would say, as I tell my students or any young person, the most important thing coming out of high school, college, or law school is to make yourself indispensable. No matter what a senator or a supervisor asks you to do, you do it with enthusiasm, you do it well. If you make yourself indispensable, you're going to get more and more responsibility. And then maybe one of my golden rules, Nathan, I'm sure you know this in your own life. If I were going to say what has been most beneficial throughout a 50-year career, personal relationships build on trust. And they started with Senator Brooke, with him, with his staff, but very, very importantly, with the Republican and Democratic senators and staffers, which allowed me to help Senator Brooke get a lot done in the Senate and was extraordinarily invaluable during the Reagan-Bush years, when on many occasions I would go one-on-one with a Bill Brock or a Sam Pierce or a Dick Thornburg and their staffs in workout compromises, not alone, as I said, facilitate a coordinator are the best ways to describe my job. But they knew what they were getting to a degree when they got me on there. So I would start with those two things, as well as the passionate commitment, what my purpose was in terms of social justice. For me, the three mantras have always been Ticcon Alum, number one, two, the Beatitudes, and number three, the preamble to the Constitution. And all three have been guiding me through my professional career. When I think about people who are early developing their skills and their confidence as players in the world, at what point do you think you came to that? Like, is that something that develops in law school? Is that something that was innate to you as a teenager? Did you have challenges with knowing whether or not like you had the strength and capability to do these things? Or how does that come together for you? Nathan, I'm only doing this for you and for me because you didn't put a time limitation. <laughs> but it's it's a funny story. When I was in elementary school, I was a superstar. Seventh and eighth grade, and they had those 
tracked group number one, the, the smartest, supposedly, seventh and eighth graders, which I was in. But I found out in seventh and eighth grade that I wasn't going to become a professional baseball player, which was the only thing I ever wanted to do, was play for the Boston Red Sox. What position is the real question, though? Third base. Yeah. As I told Senator Brooke. corner, yeah. As I told Senator Brooke, we went to the 1975 Baltimore Oriole game before there was a Camden Yards. And I said, Senator, I love working with you, but there's one other job I'd rather have. You see Rico Petroselli, who'd been shortstopped at third base, said, that's where I'd rather be. And he said, that's okay. I totally understand. I wanted to be an Arthur Ashe. So I became the class clown. I was so bad that the teachers put my desk facing the rear wall so my wit or lack of would not dominate the class and I would do anything to make the girls laugh and the guys. And in the spring of eighth grade, I went up to my parents and said, I want to go to Marmion Military Academy. And they said, excuse me? And she said, <laughs> you're six blocks from the number 10 rated public school in the entire state of Illinois. Why do you want to travel 15, 20 miles to Aurora, Illinois? And I said, well, some friends went there and they got a good education. But my real reason, I wanted to start over. And I wanted what I thought had been totally lacking in seventh and eighth grade, self-discipline. And I went to Marmion which might have been among the two or three most important decisions I made in my life, became a company commander and the ROTC. It was a school run by the Benedictines who are militaristic. Were you selected for that? Did you, like, how did you? You had to apply and take entrance exams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I got off to a slow start. Slow start being like a, a 90 student, a, a B, B, B plus, but just not really working that hard. And for some reason I got a transformation in my junior year. I can remember the English teacher who became a mentor, Father Hogan, Father Mark. He said, my first extemporaneous essay, Nathan, this is true. You're given 30 minutes in class to write an essay. At 17, I wrote an essay on how President Harry Truman had desegregated the armed forces in 1950. Got my lowest mark <laughs> of my junior year, but I had a 96, 97 average for my junior and senior years. Applied to one school, Notre Dame. Went to Notre Dame, did well. Then there was the Vietnam dilemma, but because I had been actually eight years of ROTC, but four years at Notre Dame, Lieutenant Colonel, I got a deferment and went to the University of Chicago Law School. I actually decided to leave uh, the University of Chicago at Christmas of 1969, 68. I just didn't think it was for me. I thought it was boring. I didn't feel like uh, it was challenging. Uh, but I, this may not be the life for me. And I thought of doing maybe a Chicago business degree combination. And I told my uh, supervisor, uh, the Bigelow fellow, uh, who happened to be a guy uh, who would go on to be the chief judge of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals 
and one of the most forthright Federalist Society types in the country, Danny Boggs. And he said, oh, we all felt like that. You've got to stay in law school. <laughs> and on more than a few occasions, I said, Danny, you're the reason. <laughs> you might have regretted it during Bork. Da, 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 da. So, so I got through law school and I clerked at Kirkland Ellis, which paid my way, which was, as you know, Ralph Nader's worst firm in the country. But I knew I was never going to be there or anywhere else. By then, I knew I wanted to go into politics. I spent a summer at the law firm of Chuck Colson, Gadsby and Hannah in Washington, D.C. at 17th and Penn and fell in love with Washington really, really hard and said, I'm coming back there. And I did. Uh, and from then on, I pretty much knew what I wanted to do. And the first thing I wanted to do was be uh, a counsel for a United States senator. There's the term Rockefeller Republican, which is, you know, in the lexicon. It refers to a more liberal Republican that used to exist. They may be hiding out under the grass somewhere, but generally they're gone. And you've also referred to a lot of other senators that people who were paying attention to politics back then know were, they were to the left of, of the conservative Democratic senators. Absolutely. And- that Republican Party is hard to recall, you know, since since 94, certainly since 2016. Um, it's just, um, unfortunately, it's extinct. But could you explain to people who are following politics only recently about what the parties used to be like, especially on things like civil rights? To contrast <laughs> the last... 30 years, and especially the last five years, I think that's a really important uh, issue uh, to uh, address. I always uh, addressed legislation with my goal of the strongest possible bipartisan bill that can be enacted into law and had a pretty successful career. But that was at a time where you did have the Wednesday group, and it was tw it was probably 30 percent, maybe more, of the Republican caucus. It was probably a dozen, 13, 14 liberal Republicans, people who were liberal on social justice issues, more moderate on fiscal and foreign policy issues. But they were the balance of power, even more so than the conservative Democrats. That block, which, which also had people like Howard Baker, who was a conservative, but he had leadership aspirations and uh, he, he was good on civil rights, uh, as was an Everett Dirksen before my time. These people I, I loved. I mean, I grew up in two towns, Boston and Chicago, where in large measure, the Democrats were corrupt, <laughs> or at least machine politics, sometimes at their worst. And I found myself as a youngster, sometimes rooting for Republicans, not Democrats. And that was certainly underscored working as a volunteer for Rockefeller. And then Senator Brooke, I uh, loved him before I started and then fell totally in love with him for all those decades. But the, the energy and the commitment, the passion, the belief in this liberal republicanism, I'm a fairly good student of history and politics, and I could better understand the Wilkies <laughs> and the Deweys and others, uh, thoughtful uh, conservative Republicans. But these are Republicans who got the job done. 
and they passed the civil rights laws. More Republicans supported the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of 64 proportionally than Democrats. And as I did in an op-ed, which I can share with you at some time, uh, if you would like, just recently in January, Senator Durenberger and I did the op-ed. And it was basically uh, to convince Manchin and Cinema to do the carve-out on the uh, Voting Rights Act and on the Freedom to Vote Act. But what I did is I used Durenberger and myself as Wednesday Group Republicans. In fact, that species is extinct. But while they were alive, (laughs) they did a lot of good things. And one of the people who was most responsible for civil rights in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s was Bob Dole. So I did this portrait of Bob Dole getting almost fatally wounded in Italy, and you know the long rehabilitation, and then starting in 1964, started voting for all the important civil rights measures and continued that and expanded it to include Title IX and the Equal Rights Amendment, as well as the Rehabilitation Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act were on many of those things, especially during my time, he was a key leader. So at that time, you had an integrated Democratic Party with the conservative Southern Democrats with some Midwestern conservative Democrats. Then you had the Northeastern, Midwest, and Northwestern Republicans. And that was basically the Wednesday group, the Rockefeller wing of the party. And I loved them. I I really did. Uh, I can remember Joe Biden, when we started getting to know one another, would always come back and sit with me. This is how we got to know one another through taking opposite sides on the school busing issue. But he was on the same floor. We were three years apart. And he tried to steal me from Senator Brooke, which I thought certainly went to his self-confidence at the time, since he had just uh, turned 35 or 6, and uh, Senator Brooke was a legend. And this was 1976. But we've stayed friends, and he loved Senator Brooke and, and worked with him. There's nothing like that now. There's not one Northeastern uh, liberal Republican. I would say in the Senate, there are no liberal Republicans. I would say in the Senate, there are no moderate Republicans. It's a degree of conservatism. And you've got a Murkowski, and you've got a Collins, and you've got a Romney, and a couple others, maybe, who are thoughtful conservatives, who still vote almost always if Mitch McConnell needs them. Rarely will they be the decisive vote. Rarely will there be a McCain thumbs down on the Affordable Care Act making all the difference in the world. It's sad. I mean, I I have no recognition of what's happening now based on my history in Washington, D.C. On the Democratic side, of course, it's been frustrating for me in the last year or two uh, I like them all, whether uh, it's Manchin and Cinema, who are certainly moderate to conservative. I think Cinema at one time was much more liberal. Uh, in fact, she was a young elected official for people from the American way way back uh, uh, 15, 20 years ago. But now you've got a few conservatives and a few moderates, but usually it's the, I would call pragmatic liberals. Many will call them centrist or moderates, the Joe Bidens. Joe Biden is a pragmatic liberal. Uh, I was talking with Senator Durenberger when we were doing this 
uh, op-ed about what we were going to call ourselves because we always considered ourselves progressive Republicans. And I said the name was stolen. (laughs) And now, of course, uh, and I admire the intellect and the tenacity and the commitment of the AOCs and many others. But what happened in 2001 was such a tragedy, not just on the Republican, but also on the Democratic side in not being able to compromise. We could have got Build Back Better in 2001. 2020, 21. Yeah, uh, excuse me. We could have got Build Back Better in 2021, I believe, if there had been some real compromise. As you know, Nathan, the way you get a compromise within the leadership conference, within the Senate, the House, between the executive branch and the legislative branch, you put people in a room and you don't let them out. You select the right people, but you get a consensus, you get a compromise. And that can happen on a infrastructure bill for obvious reasons. But on other things, the divide is so wide, uh, it's very, very, very difficult. I want to ask you about when you sort of take on the executive directorship of the leadership conference. Um, That's a very different job running an organization than being a, a legislative person in the Senate. It requires a different kind of skill set. What did you learn about leadership doing that? And how does the leadership conference fit into the progressive ecosystem then and now? The leadership conference on civil rights has been the most effective national coalition since 1950. It's now up to 235 national organizations, all the minority organizations, whether it's Black, Latino, Asian Pacific, Islander, all the major women's groups, all the major disability groups, labor groups, older American groups, all are within the umbrella of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. When I was the executive director, the abortion rights groups were not part of the Leadership Conference. That didn't happen until the last few years. So to to get these 185 organizations to agree on anything, opposing the Bork nomination, or more challenging, opposing the Thomas nomination because he was Black, takes an extraordinary amount of patience for everybody involved, but especially the executive director, the first full-time paid executive director in the leadership conference history. And I think the consensus building skills I had learned in the Senate, plus the luck, in some measure anyway, of being, in essence, the Senate liaison to the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights for the last five years of my time with Senator Brooke. So once a month, once every couple of months, Clarence Mitchell and Arnie Aronson, Joe Rao said, come down and tell us with Brooke and Kennedy, what's our strategy? What do you want us to do? So they got to know me as as a person. And you heard me before, personal relationships build on trust. It's a dominant theme for me, connecting dots and a lot of other things. But if you've got those trust relationships, you can get things done. And here I was my first week after the 0 for 4 comment and my first two lunches as the head of the NAACP, Althea Simmons in uh, 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 Washington, D.C., Ben Hooks at the national level, and Tony Hernandez uh, with the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund. And 
the first thing they both basically said was, <laughs> we're not sure how long you're going to last. And the NAACP, Althea, was slightly better uh, because the NAACP with the AFL-CIO were the uh, two uh, organizations that were in a special category in terms of grassroots and ability to raise money, especially the AFL-CIO. And we had a good, productive conversation, but she laid down the law. And then Antonia basically said, you know, the last time the leadership conference got involved in anything with respect to the Latino community was when they opposed Latinos being included in the Voting Rights Act of 1975. And I said, before you say anything else, Senator Brooke was in disagreement with Clarence Mitchell. I was advising him that, of course, other minorities should be part of the Voting Rights Act. And before I could say much more, she said, you're not listening. If you in any way deviate <laughs> from what you just said, if we're not treated as an equal, if you don't take us not just as part of consensus making, I want to be at the table and you better make sure that we get in the extension this year, the Latino and other minorities into it and bilingual ballot provisions, et cetera, et cetera. And if you don't, either you won't be the executive director of the leadership conference or the Latino community will probably leave the leadership conference. And I said, well, you've made that crystal clear. <laughs> so so if, if I would describe how I spent my time, it was one meeting, one conference call after another, every day on something like the Voting Rights Act for 18 straight months, every single Friday was a meeting at the leadership conference of 30 or 40 organizations and the task force on lobbying, the task force on grassroots, the media task force, the policy task force. How do we keep a consensus, especially during the compromise negotiations, which were essential with Dole and with Hyde and Senator Brenner and others in the House? So it's, it's communications, 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 personal relationships, indefatigability. Third or fourth month, I was almost fired. There was a revolt by a number of the legal defense organizations, and luck came into play, and I was able to, with help, to turn it around in 48 hours, and we got a Voting Rights Act 389 to 24 out of the House of Representatives. It's the consensus issues, Nathaniel, it's, it's Nathan, I'm sorry, it's... I, I go by Nathaniel, so... Oh, Nathaniel, okay. And the understanding that intellectually you get everything, Ralph. <laughs> you, you've been, uh, since uh, the young girls were killed in the church in Philadelphia, Mississippi, you, you've been there, especially on black civil rights. You've had good mentors with Latino civil rights and women's issues and other issues. But you've got to go into every room listening and you know where you want to end up. You know your goals and timetables. You know this is the date you want it enacted and what you have to put in place every step of the way. But you can't dictate it. You, you, you've got to facilitate it. You've got to coordinate it. And you've got to understand perspective. You can't be the first speaker other than giving the introduction. 
you can't be the one to offer the first compromise or the first amendment. You got to listen and sense where the consensus is going and help it get there. One of the things that anyone who looks at the progressive ecosystem can't help but notice is that incredible diversity and multiplicity of organizations. The leadership conference is made up of over 200 groups you mentioned, and you would find that in in the environmental world and in, in every area. Is the way that we're organized inevitable? Is it helpful? Does it make sense? From your perspective, how do you think about like if we are in this giant battle to move the country forward to multiracial open democracy versus people who want to go a different direction, do we have things organized well to fight that fight? There are extraordinary leaders and extraordinary organizations and coalitions. And before I left People for. Uh, I had sat down with the environmental and the reproductive rights and the consumer and other organizations because uh, I was trying to put together an umbrella coalition, especially with respect to the courts on a long-term basis, but on other issues to help build a progressive movement that was more united. And there were other efforts, by the way, not so much at the point I'm talking about, but Andy Stern, Cecile Richards, a lot, lots of things that I was part of. Uh, and, I, and I think that whether it was the Bork nomination, which had far more than 200 organizations that I chaired, but what Mike Pederitz did with the AFL, uh, surprisingly, except for Time Magazine, not too much coverage. I devoted an entire class uh, to what he did and what he did after the election with the business community. Yeah. And that's the kind of coalition I think you're thinking about. Uh, Grover Norquist had done it with, with the right, with his Wednesday group meetings, and that's worked fairly well, although the Fellow Society is the superstar within that uh, orbit. And remember now, except for leading a coalition of 85 organizations at the National Coalition on Healthcare and the Affordable Care Act, and working with various other coalitions at that time. I haven't been that close to all of these organizations and new organizations. I know there are a lot of great organizations and some coalitions that seem to have done well, but I've always hoped and prayed that there would be on certain issues, for example, on the Bush tax cut of 2001, 2002, put together, uh, I think it was the Fair Taxes Coalition, and it was AFSCME and I at, the, at, the, at, uh, at People for the American Way were the co-chairs. And that did pretty well. The most important thing uh, was that it only lasted several years. It was not permanent. Of course, we now have one. Uh, but but we, we got hundreds of organizations on that debt. But I think they're good ad hoc efforts. I don't believe it's what you're talking about, though, and of course, so many of them are C3s, so that's another issue. Right. They can't all even collaborate. Yeah. And that was, we had a C3, a C4, and a PAC at, at People 4, but that was complicated internally and keeping track of all your hours and, uh, and all that kind of thing. And there were some near misses as people try to 
get us involved in things we couldn't be uh, really, really uh, involved in. But I'm sure there's still a quest without having talked. Uh, again, remember, uh, until 2021, I was out of action for four years. So uh, I, I'm, I'll be having a, a lunch with Maya Wiley to see what I can do to be helpful. She's the new head of the leadership conference. Yes, yeah, yeah and wonderful. She worked with me uh, when she was with the National, uh, 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 the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. I think she's brilliant. I think she's the perfect person. Uh, she's the first black woman to head the leadership conference. Uh, on the leadership conference, when I was the executive director, we had maybe 10 people on staff. It's important because the way I viewed it, and financially, there was no other way to do it anyway. But what the executive director, now the president and CEO, has are the resources and the staffs and the grassroots of those 235 organizations. So my strength was using those 185 organizations. So never a one-man show, as you probably already know. Oh, of course not. And it sounds like an enormously challenging political job to coordinate and lead and follow when necessary and all of the things you would have to do. Yeah, within the coalition and, and then the press was always a challenge, but also we were criticized a lot. Uh, there was a law review article on we were too powerful back in 1993 by a liberal civil rights law professor that said that we had too much of an impact on the legislative process, whether it was Supreme Court nominations or in this case, it was the Civil Rights Act of 1991 or the ADA. Members of the House and Senate had, had told me uh, on occasions, going back to the Voting Rights Act in 1981 and 1982, and I'm doing a book that I started in 2016, 17, before I got ill, and I'd actually love to have uh, COVID permitting uh, a lunch with you to talk about it. The Taylor Branch encouraged me to do it, to, to tell how we did it during those 15 years, how the civil rights laws were strengthened. Then he very importantly said, but you got to make it prescriptive because your days are no longer, at least for a while. When I was close to people who were elected officials, including editorial board editors like on Bork, if you're a citizen or if you're a CEO of uh, uh, the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights and members, for whatever reason, Democrats or Republicans, are not addressing the issue, and you think you've got some answers or even some language or a political strategy outside of Washington, as a citizen, don't you have an obligation, certainly as the CEO of the Leadership Conference? It is a challenge in any of these jobs because your, your first constituency are your dues-paying members, but you've got many other constituencies too in trying to strike a balance uh, between being the person who does not cast the vote <laughs> and is not elected to do anything and the person who wants to get the job done in the best way possible that benefits all the constituencies, hopefully every American. Did you have times where you knew that something that was wanted by the conference wasn't going to make it politically and you had to sort of be an intermediary between the legislative side and your conference? I think I think the toughest time I had, and this is not perfect in terms of the response, but I think it'll give you a sense 
we got off to that start. One reason there's a Federalist Society today is because of what the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights did in the 97th Congress. Uh, it started right after the Dole Compromise. And there are people on record that will be in my book who said, we can't win legislatively, maybe ever, but we can change the jurisprudence of the country. We got off to this fast start, and I thought, hmm, maybe no second post-Reconstruction, but we had to win on the Voting Rights Act because that was motherhood, apple pie, and baseball all in one. If we couldn't win on the Voting Rights Act, we wouldn't win on anything. And the next one, I thought, not immediately, but it was the Grove City decision. And the Supreme Court decision was on Title IX. In Title IX, of course, you cannot discriminate against girls and women in the education context. We all know it in a sports context, but it's, it's broader than that. And so the court, a conservative court, as I've said before, basically said only the unit of the institution, whether it's a college or anywhere else, that gets federal money is prohibited from discriminating on the basis of gender. So all the money goes to the science college of the university. Only the science college is covered by the non-discrimination in Title IX. So we're going, you got to be kidding me. You can discriminate everywhere else in the university except for that athletic department or that English department. So we organized immediately and we had a press conference within maybe two or three weeks where we had, I think, 60 senators who supported the bill that we were supporting. But again, initially, members of the House and the Senate, especially the two leaders, and at that time it was Bob Packwood and Pat Schroeder, only wanted Title IX. We recommended adding Title VI of the 64 Civil Rights Act, the Age Discrimination Employment Act, and the uh, uh, Rehabilitation Act of 1974. All non-discrimination enforcement mechanisms where there was federal funding involved. So that, that was a good example of us basically saying, if you want a coalition consensus supporting the enactment, that's part one. Part two, the first year, we thought we had a consensus with everybody. And this was the beginning of the ending of my good relationship with Jack Danforth. But in 1984, we got out of the house with like a 370 to 40 margin. And the agreement was no one would take advantage of any policy. All we want to do was restore the law, hence the Civil Rights Restoration Act. And I knew why we were doing that. We didn't want an abortion fight. So abortion did not become an issue. Hatch filibustered the bill in October of 1984, with a thousand amendments and the bill died and Packwood made the motion to to, to table and they offered us a whole bunch of deals, Packwood, Dole, Kennedy, everybody. And Althea Simmons said, one for all, all for one. We might be doing better uh, if you took the deal, but all four of us have got to stick together. Four months later, the Catholic conference 
decides that abortion is part of this because there are insurance programs at universities and colleges that covered abortion, even though Cap Weinberger was the author of this particular provision. And all of a sudden, we lost Danforth in the Senate and Sensenbrenner in the House. And I knew I'm not going to get along. <laughs> uh, and and uh, four years later, we overturned on one day, March 22nd of 1988, presidential veto of the Civil Rights Restoration Act, but only after the Danforth Sensenbrenner abortion amendment had passed. And I knew for four years that it was not going to pass unless something happened. And the one time I got in significant trouble was when I tried to broker a compromise and try to get some of the women groups to come on board. In significant trouble, I mean, taken to the woodshed. So yes, there were moments like that. I'd like to ask you about that time at People for the American Way. What was different about that job than working at the leadership conference? Well, number one, I had 150 staffers. <laughs> so it was more of an, a true organization, not a coalition. That's a good way to put it, too. It was a large, effective organization. And I think we finished in the top five in terms of legislative and grassroots effectiveness back in 2005, 2004, 2005. It was good. Uh, and, and, and particularly because of Norman's hand combined with my skill sets and all the other people we had with, within the organization. Without question, a lot more freedom. Once I knew the general policy, which was established after the president CEO making recommendations to the executive committee, the board of, of, of People with the American Way, People with the American Way Foundation, then it was my turn to execute. But with rare exceptions, like a Supreme Court nomination, we would definitely talk and act accordingly. On most stuff, we, we knew where we wanted to go, and it was my job to get the job done. Uh, and because of all the leadership conference background uh, and all those personal relationships built on trust on the Hill and within hundreds of organizations, uh, it was sort of having some of the advantages of the leadership conference, but not having to get a consensus on every damn thing. That made the leadership conference as effective as it was over these last uh, 70 years. But uh, it was in many ways easier to be with people for the American way. But it was, it was very different. Our last four years, I think we brought in $22.5 million each year, uh, which is a lot, especially in 2004 and five and six. And, and that gave us flexibility to do lots of things that uh, that uh, LCCR is the coordinating mechanism really couldn't do. It really enabled me to learn new things. But as with the National Coalition on Healthcare and other things that I've done, you really build on a foundation and, and, and broaden your scope of experiences and expertise. So it was a nice one-two combination, to say the least. Has, has that organization... Um declined in significance. I don't hear about it the way I used to. Is our budgets down? What's your sense of the trajectory of that lately? I, I, I believe People4 is, is still a, a vital, important organization. 
Ben Jealous, I, I think, is the perfect uh, candidate uh, in terms of being the president CEO. Again, remember that I stand by what I just said, but I've been involved in healthcare and then with affordable medicine and then democracy reform since 2007. From my continuous contact with Norman and others and my successors, certainly in, in reading and uh, in, in hearing and talking, uh, it, it's, it's still one of the most important progressive organizations. When Trump was running and then he won, I started to try to figure out how much to worry about the country. I guess I'm still working on that to some extent, but I've settled on being very worried about what he and the movement that he's somehow hooked up with are doing, have done. It feels to me substantially different than any other political problem in my lifetime. I've read a lot of American history. You know, we've had some big challenges. We had a civil war, but the interpretation that a lot of scholars and students of authoritarianism give of the moves that he's made and how they fit into a pattern of things that Mussolini did or things that Orban does or things that are being copied in the States by people trying to act like Trump. It's just something I didn't think could come to this country. It's changing our politics in a fundamental way that it's hard to get around. It's, it, and I know that you are thinking about that with your current work with the fellowships. And what's your assessment of where we are in this political moment with respect to that threat to how we're governed in a fundamental way? I probably will tell you, send a couple op-eds to you. Uh, we may want to follow up on, on, on some of this, but I can certainly address uh, what you're talking about right now. Uh, I will be 76 on May 17th. I've been in Washington for exactly uh, 50 years. I've never been as dispirited as I am now. I, in op-eds, have said, and I'm not the only one who's been saying it over the last year or more, this is the most serious internal threat to democracy since the Civil War. Nothing else comes close. We have, I, I guess it's a cult now to call what the Republican Party and Donald Trump are. And I talked about the anti-government movement that started, especially in 1994 and five. But that's part of it. But you can still have a democracy <laughs> uh, and have some ups and downs. And, and we did for a long time from 94 to... Exactly. And there were things that got done. Not so much during Obama because of Mitch McConnell's pronouncement in 2009. And he kept pretty faithful on that. And of course, in 2016 with Merrick Garland, he did something no one ever thought of doing in holding up a Supreme Court nomination that uh, came down in February or, or March. He did things that uh, were totally inconsistent with uh, the way things are done. And as you know, perverted the filibuster. Uh, the filibuster uh, had pros and cons. 
but both sides use it effectively on occasion. Certainly I was for it. In fact, raised a lot of money uh, to preserve the filibuster uh, so that on Supreme Court nominations, uh, we would have it. Uh, and I was opposed to what Harry Reid did in 2013 and told people for and others that that was going to backfire. Uh, but I've never called a, a, an elected official in the United States evil. But Donald Trump's years and Donald Trump's post-presidential years, this is evil stuff. One doesn't want to call him a racist. Many of his actions and statements are racist. What he is is a narcissistic autocrat who does not seem to believe uh, in the democratic values that have governed us. He would love to be able to do what other autocratic leaders do uh, across the world, including in Russia, and not have to be answerable to anybody. But in terms of making government work, uh, it's never been worse. It's never been more polarized, never been more partisan, uh, never been more frightening. Uh, when you've got such a significant percentage of the American people uh, agreeing with Trump, not only about Biden not winning the election, but when you have a certain percentage who actually believe there will be a civil war and would join it uh, and think that it may be necessary to be violent on a grander scale than January 6th, which was maybe my most dispiriting personal moment in, in my life uh, as, as, as you did at the television uh, and watched them breach the, uh, the, the Capitol. Uh, but, but I think our democracy at risk, as, you, as I said before, that was the title of my course, uh, and I think that we've got a situation now. I said to the clash, you know what a presidential veto is, and that's part of checks and balances. And we've always had checks and balances. Madison did a pretty good job, but he always said uh, it would depend on good people, <laughs> uh, good heart, whatever the phrase he used. But right now, we don't have a lot of those people. One of the things I love so much about Ukraine, uh, not just the courage uh, and the patriotism, but the love for one another, willing to die for one another, and being so responsible for one another. It's just quite amazing. And I think we've lost that sense of civic engagement, whether it's the anti-vaxxers. Uh, and as you know, first president won the Revolutionary War because of the smallpox vaccine that he mandated uh, uh, at Valley Forge. Uh, and we won the Civil War because of the smallpox vaccine. Now you've got a president who takes the vaccine into boosters, <laughs> takes advantage of the anti-vaxxers as, as part of the political movement. Uh, I, I think he has destroyed so much. I was so upbeat, obviously, on November 7th when then to be President Biden was declared the winner in the certification. But January 6th, as Bart Gelman has certainly said in his piece in The Atlantic, was just the beginning. Uh, that was just uh, the warm-up, the, the preview. And, and I started writing. And part of the work I did with the Century Foundation, in addition to voting rights uh, and the filibuster, uh, we did about five or six studies, reports on disinformation and the big lie. Then, of course, in the middle of all of that, partly on the basis of the big lie, you had 34 state laws enacted by 19 states, Republican-controlled, that either suppressed the vote, or as I kept on telling my colleagues, 
on the Hill or in the coalition or at work, voter suppression, which I've been dealing with in a major way since 1980, but voter suppression is less significant than election subversion. And then you get into the independent legislature doctrine. One of the most difficult things psychologically during 2021 and 2022 was working on the voting rights bills and the filibuster and backup strategies that I was thinking through just in case. But knowing no matter what I did, if that six to three or five, the majority held, and I was pretty sure the five, four majority would hold because they've already got four votes on the independent legislature doctrine, and that's not including Barrett. Those state laws, no matter what we did in the end, would probably be the law of the land. Either the Supreme Court would validate them or invalidate what the Congress was trying to do. I'm not saying that was a guarantee, but my guess is that five, maybe six, especially after what John Roberts did to the Voting Rights Act, both in 2013 and 2021, and he's the the moderate and tries, not because he disagrees where the other five are going, he just wants to do it in an incremental way and not a radical revolutionary way that will put the Supreme Court at risk in terms of its standing with the public. It's a strategic, just as it is on abortion uh, or on the Affordable Care Act and on other things. Uh, so uh, I, I, I remember the first time I used the phrase, and the first time uh, my colleagues didn't want me to use it, and I said, listen, what we had on January 6th was a violent insurrection. And the first time that the nation's capital was assaulted and uh, whether or not we were going to have a peaceful transition certainly changed. Uh, We, in the end, got legally a a peaceful transition. But from the time, almost from the time Biden took office, I started using the phrase unarmed insurrection. This is the 1840s. This is the 1850s. This is nullification. This is what they're doing in these 19 states and more. And our democracy is totally at risk because we not only have a presidential veto, we have a Senate veto, the filibuster. And now more importantly, and the other op-ed I was thinking about sending you was one I wrote in uh, October of 2016 about what was going to happen if Trump won. And if he did what he said he was going to do, Scalia Thomas type justices. And we had put out for eight or nine or 10 years, something called courting disaster about how many precedents would be overturned by a Thomas Scalia, dozens of precedents. And the media has been pretty good in talking about Roe versus Wade, but only enlarging it to address privacy issues, marriage equality, anti-sodomy laws, and things like that. What they don't understand is that this court majority disagrees basically with almost every precedent going back to the Social Security decision back in 1937. If you read the first 70 pages of the Roberts decision on the Affordable Care Act, he went with us on the tax issue. What he did in the, se- in the first 70 pages was a blueprint to how to do something about the Commerce Clause interpretations, which underscore civil rights, the environment, consumer, one major issue after others. All of those precedents are at risk. I was accused by the Democrats in 2005, some very notable Democrats, 
of engaging in hyperbole. And I won't tell you who some of them were. And they interrupted me when I was making a major presentation. And they said, we wanted to talk to you about engaging in hyperbole. No contraire. (laughs) If I'm guilty of anything, just like I said during Bork, I'm guilty of understatement. Everything is at stake. I think we keep getting surprised. There's something that's happened to the other party. I kind of feel like it's developed antibodies to reason, antibodies to reaching to our higher principles because they figured out, oh, we can't do something because it will hurt us in a partisan fashion. So you can't argue anymore about a principle like everybody should be able to vote because they immediately scotch that. And that's true, in my view, about numerous issues. Like, I think even if you talk to a regular person who's a Republican who's voting for Trump, you wouldn't get that. But in the leadership class, they're immune to argument. Does it feel like that to you? Am I wrong? No, I think there's a lot of that. When I was trying to figure out and work with friends of Manchin and Sittable, as well as my colleagues and my classmates from law school, and uh, you're the bipartisan compromise guy, you guys won't compromise. And I said, I want to share two statements with you. One, what McConnell said in 2009, we're going to make him a one-term president, and they're not going to compromise, and they didn't compromise. And then and Tim Kaine put it into a New York Times and Washington Post story maybe four or five, six months ago. And he said, I was talking to some of the Republican colleagues, and there are Republicans who are willing to compromise. But McConnell said at the beginning of the Biden administration, there are two issues on which I'm going to ask you not to compromise at all. One is campaign finance reform, and two is voting rights. No way. Manchin was not going to get anybody except for Lisa Murkowski on the John Lewis bill. In other words, anything that he was worried would tilt the political battlefield. And keep him from becoming the Senate Majority Leader in 2025 and a Republican president. Get elected in 2024. Does that mean things like Electoral College, the Act? Electoral uh, Count Act. Electoral Count, like things like that. You think there's any chance of those going through? There's a chance. Yeah. Although it's it's it, as you know, it's it's much more complicated substantively and politically. But there's a chance only because McConnell thinks it might be in his interest. What if Biden is reelected or if another Democrat becomes president? It could play for us someday. Exactly. And there have been efforts, I think, in the past to try to pull that off. Nothing comparable to January 6th and but it's a double-edged sword. So I, I, th- I think there, there's a chance that we can get the Electoral Count Act. That's really important. Uh, that's as important as anything uh, that I can think of, is, is getting that right. So no one can try to do with the Eastman's, what they try to do, and came that close. Ralph, I'm mindful of presuming too much on your time, and I'm grateful for what time I've had with you. I wonder if there's a question that I haven't asked you that I should have. Well, I, I, I guess at the beginning, I said, be sure we get to the Supreme Court. My guess is we, we, we've covered enough of it as part of answers to other 
questions. Do you have an opinion uh, again, about? I'm more afraid of that than anything else. Are you in favor of expanding it, as some people have promoted? I, I never as thought a I would say this, Nathaniel, but because I'm a process conservative, uh, I was not for the abolition of the filibuster. I was for a carve out, and I've always loved checks and balances. I've come to the conclusion. I'm not sure we can save democracy unless the court is expanded or there's some kind of deus ex machina finale coming <laughs> that, I, that I haven't thought of or anticipated. Right now, Mitch McConnell has done what he accuses the Democrats of trying to do. He's packed the court. There should be Democratic appointees uh, to the court because the Scalia and Ginsburg seats were stolen. Unbelievable, unprecedented hypocrisy by Mitch McConnell, given the arguments he made in 2016, and then the arguments he made 30 days before the election. But it, it would be a five-person liberal majority. It would have been the first liberal court in my professional lifetime. 1971 was the last time before Powell and Rehnquist were confirmed that we had a liberal Supreme Court. What's stunning is how extremely close so many things, the Gore-Bush election, we've just been on the razor's edge between sanity and retrogression, and it's going the wrong way. You've been part of a number of these big national campaigns, including the block Bork from the Supreme Court and healthcare and things like that. Is is there something in that experience that leads you to any suggestions to make electorally, like the campaigns that we need to run this fall for the midterms, the next presidential? Is there something that you feel like is missing from the current way that Democrats and the progressive coalition are aiming at the political moment? For the last 30 or 40 years, I've always admired, in one sense, the tenacity and the ferocity of the right. They play a different game. People sometimes ask, what do you think of playing hardball, which I've done on occasion over the last 50 years. And I've always said, my goal is, is always the strongest possible bipartisan bill that can be enacted into law. Da, 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 da. However, if you're going to get things done legislatively or electorally or in any other way, you've got to be tenacious. You've got to be ferocious. You've got to be passionately committed. You don't do anything illegal, unethical, or immoral but you fight hard. And I think too often, not everyone for sure, but as a general matter, Democrats underestimate the tenacity and the ferocity of the right. No, they wouldn't do this, but they do it. And they do it right in your face in real time. And it, we don't seem to learn some of the lessons that... But is the lesson to be as 
tenacious and fer- ferocious. It doesn't feel like to me like that they're the model of how to conduct politics. No, no, right? no, yeah. no. What I, what, I'm sorry. I thank you for clarifying that. By tenacious and ferocious, maybe I should substitute passionate along with tenaciousness. But that's that's why the other half of the, of the paragraph was you don't do anything immoral, illegal, or unethical, but you pull out all the stops. You take it seriously. You're a Stacey Abrams in Georgia, and you do what we saw in Ossoff and Warnick and how things happen in standing up to Trump and standing up to the Georgia Republican Party. You fight hard, but there's not the consistency uh, uh, the tenacious consistency that the Republicans time and again are willing to do. Part of our problem is that they're living in this information environment that is putting them all in the same box. There's a poll out that 68% of Republicans would impeach uh, Biden if they get control of the House. I mean, impeach him. We impeached Trump twice because of corruption and an attempt to not abide by the national election, like the central thing that we need from our leaders. Biden, whether he's been perfect or not, he has been honorable and fulfilling his office in in an exemplary way. He had a pretty good first year. As a human being, he's doing a good job in a complex time with a pandemic and a Russian invasion and a million other things to deal with. I mean, the concept that you would start thinking about impeachment of an honorable president tells you just how deeply rotted they are. I've talked to people who are worried about like conflict management and they will say like, you don't want to necessarily only think about partisanship. You want to think about like compromise. You want to think about talking across the divide. You That is, I think, your instinct. But we face this situation where they don't want to talk and they're not listening. Absolutely. Um, when I was putting together a draft for uh, me and for Dave Durenberger, there, there were two adjustments made at the, the last moment. One, very rightly, he told me a story about Robert Doe and Bill Clinton going to Italy and the superstar was Bob Dole because of what happened to him in Italy. And we were doing that to underscore the patriotism and the bipartisanship and expanding voting rights and equal opportunity. The very last thing I did, I think addresses in part what you're talking about, because a bipartisan approach has been part of my professional life from the very start. Uh, and there were a lot of successes. But what I don't think sometimes a mansion or a cinema take into consideration and many others is bipartisanship is a worthy strategy. It's it's worthy per se, but it's a means to an end. In the end is democracy, making democracy work, making the Senate work. The Senate rules are not a suicide pact. Dole and Byrd, whether it was changing the rules or setting new precedents, 
which is sort of an alternative universe because <laughs> the, the written rules and then you have these precedents like the carve-outs. But that's part of the Senate history. The rigidity of, of Manchin's thinking and Sinema's thinking on voting rights and, and on the filibuster was very harmful and I was so disappointed in them. And I thought maybe we had a good chance because Manchin worked so hard on the Manchin-Klobuchar compromise, and he got Murkowski on board. But he really thought he could get Republicans when they were under a mandate not to compromise at all on those two issues, because it would affect the Senate and, and, and the presidential. I'm not sure I, I've, I've written more, a more important paragraph. <laughs> I'm not saying I, I'm the only one in the world who's ever said that. Uh, but in the context of January 3rd, uh, 2022, when we had the op-ed published, it was one of the best ones that I've ever come up with because it, it, for me, it made coherent what I'm all about, what uh, I think the Democrats and Republicans should be all about. Uh, and, and that's within the Democratic caucus in the House and the Senate. But we're talking mainly Republicans and Democrats. Now, the, the other thing, before I forget it, Nathaniel, and I'll go back to, to this, the, the other thing that Brooke and... Uh, of course, Kennedy, was the importance of compromise and bipartisanship. But both of them, and some of the greatest civil rights leaders, not all of them, understood incremental progress. And this goes to a whole bunch of things we've talked about. But sometimes, as in 1957, uh, you don't get what you want. You get very little of what you want. But she passed the first civil rights bill since the 1860s or the 1870s. You established a Department of Justice, uh, a Civil Rights Division, and a Civil Rights Commission. And Kennedy had a rule that you could get 80%, and we don't always get 80%, but you're rarely going to get 100%. Every once in a while, we pretty much get 100%. But, but mainly, compromise is essential to democracy. But it's an awfully hard time to find a compromise. It's an awfully hard time to find a compromise. It's, it, well, it's, as we found out uh, in, in 2021, uh, whether it was Build Back Better within the Senate uh, or it was the, the voting rights in the, in the filibuster, uh, it turned out to be impossible. It shouldn't have been, but uh, it, it'll be interesting uh, to review, people are obviously talking about writing about it, but the history of the timing of President Biden's decision on the filibuster or when the bills were brought up. There were a lot of issues that could be second-guessed, uh, but but my staying on, on this level that we're talking about now, they try hard. It was not possible to compromise given what was on the table. And it didn't get done. Listen, I don't mind doing this for several reasons. Number one, because you're taking this seriously. Number two, it's the most important issue of our lifetimes. Number three, I want to write a book <laughs> that goes beyond what I was doing in 2015 and 2016. And as Taylor said, it's got to be prescriptive. Why do I support ranked choice voting so much? Uh, why do I concern about gerrymandering or money in politics? Uh, it's it's because it's broken. The political system, the electoral system, it's all broken. What do you think turns it around? I'll tell you, uh, 
thanks to my friend Rob Ritchie and a guy by the name of Larry Diamond uh, out of the Hoover Institution uh, at Stanford uh, and a number of other people, I started studying in 2016 and 17 ranked choice voting. And when I put Let the Voters Choose together, uh, I had uh, a number of Republicans and Democrats as the board. And then I had an advisory board of 35 former senior officials from five presidential administrations. And the immediate task was gerrymandering and getting independent redistricting commissions and getting ballot initiatives or statutes, depending on the state. And the funders laughed at me when I put Utah in the top three. And I said, I'm serious. Utah has got to be one of your states. And they said, we're not going to put money into Utah. And, 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 and I, I said, the Mormon church is afraid of the Tea Party. It's going too far to the right, even for the Mormons. So ranked choice voting. And my liberal friends thought, oh, my God, you're going centrist on us. I said, how many times do I have to tell you? I was a pragmatic liberal Republican. I'm now a pragmatic liberal Democrat. Ranked choice vote, voting means that we've got a much better chance of getting elected officials, whether they be Republicans or Democrats or independents or liberals or centrists or conservatives, at the right time to compromise without fear of being primaried. I have interviewed six, seven of the key leaders in that movement of late, you know, including Rob Ritchie, who you mentioned. I'm getting persuaded that that change to the incentives, like happened in Alaska, could be part of the fix. Maine and Alaska are two interesting states to be the first two. Yes, yes. Well, maybe we're moving down from the corners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and Murkowski won on the right end, of course, last time. And she might win this time because of ranked choice voting. And then Maya Wiley, who I've said is a great friend and was the co-chair of the ranked choice voting New York City coalition. And I don't think I know leadership conferences have a, a position on ranked choice voting. But I can assure you at our lunch on the menu will be ranked choice voting. Money in politics, obviously, is really important. But ranked choice voting forces people to appeal to a broader swath of the electorate. It forces uh, more consensus. And again, I'll take a Bob Dole uh, in Kansas anytime, as I would take a an Ed Brooke and a, uh, a Ted Kennedy in Massachusetts. We would take somebody who who was the preference of a majority of the state over someone who's the preference of a majority of a crazy party any day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, the, the, the 2016 election could have been different if you had primaries that were ranked choice or, but you don't have people winning with pluralities. And that's what goes right to what you just said a few minutes, a minute ago. Well, Ralph, I appreciate all the time you've taken with me. It's going to be interesting to edit because there's a lot, but I wonder if there's anything else you want to say. That last point that I got after uh, we talked about uh, bipartisanship, and I got the most important point about the means rather than the end, 
And then you allowed me to get into uh, the Brooke Kennedy. And uh, I'm trying to think of something that we didn't touch upon. And how about if I reserve the right to continue our conversation? Uh, if you're up for it, we could do it again in some amount of months and talk about other things. It's lovely to talk to you. I really appreciate it. That was Ralph Knees. Ralph is at tcf.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.